0: By and large, I think the narrower Dirks dicta is the correct way simply because it, will, it forces the SEC to find that actual breach and actual benefit that has a result from the unfair advantage. You need the personal benefit, honestly.
1: Legislation changes
0: month to month, year to year. But over the last century, the changes have been astounding. Join Karen Woody and her students from Washington and Lee University to dig into 100 years of insider trading law.
1: Okay, welcome back to the next episode of Classroom Insiders. This is the podcast where we talk about all things insider trading. My name is Karen Woody and I'm your host. I'm also the professor for this class. I have with me today one of my students in my Insider Trading seminar who will be talking to us today about the next series of cases, or at least the next important case on Insider Trading. So please introduce yourself, Stats. Tell us a little bit about you.
0: Hello, world. My name is Stat Smith. I am a 2L student at uh, Washington Lee University. This past summer, I was a judicial intern with the Delaware Chancery Court. And this coming summer, I will be with one of the large Delaware firms.
1: Awesome. Did you see any insider trading issues in the course of the employment in the Delaware courts?
0: No, it was all a contract stuff, stock purchases, agreements, and there was one local real estate matter. So again, it was just all contractual interpretation.
1: Wow, that's still very interesting. Yeah. I told Ben in our first episode, because he had done some work on specs in his summer program, that we would probably will have a follow-on podcast, not related to insider trading, but related to all other business law type issues. You might be dialed yeah. in for that too.
0: That will be uh season two of this podcast.
1: Exactly. But yeah, so... What we're going to talk about today is where we left off, but I think it's helpful to understand where we left off, particularly if there are any listeners who didn't hear the first couple of episodes of this podcast. So stats, if you wouldn't mind, give us a little bit of background. What is happening inside of trading law? I know today you're going to talk about the very important case of Dirks versus SEC, but before we get to Dirks, what is happening? What is sort of the lay of the land and in insider trading law up until Justice Powell takes the bench?
0: So uh, before Justice Powell's assent, insider trading was pretty much predicated on the disclose or abstain rule that was first mentioned in, uh, well, and it was the holding of Caddy B. Roberts, which is a uh, administrative opinion put out by the SEC, in which a insider of a airline company, Douglas Wright, or a manufacturer, jumped the gun a little bit and disclosed that his company would be slashing the quarterly dividends. And he gave this information to a broker who promptly acted on it. And the SEC saw this as, you know, something was foul going on. So they only, interestingly, decided to prosecute The broker, they didn't actually go after the insider for disclosing this information. And in the holding, that's where we are in the administrative opinion, that's where we first see the disclose or abstain rule where if an individual is in possession of material non-public information, that individual must abstain from trading upon that information until it's been disclosed by some other party or they must disclose that information before trading. And this is the primary ruling that Texas Gulf Sulfur uses in the Second Circuit uses its, in its opinion of Texas Gulf sulfur, sulfur, where again, insiders of that company were, they were buying the shares because they had discovered some sort of mineral mineral resource in some location but hadn't disclosed that to the public. And there, again, the disclose or abstain rule must apply because these insiders actually owe a fiduciary duty to these shareholders, and they cannot put their own personal benefit above the welfare of the uh, shareholders. So that's the lay of the land up until, again, for Justice Powell's ascent uh, to the bench.
1: Fascinating. So really broad understanding of what is, should be prohibited. Under insider trading regulation, the disclosure abstain rule does seem to be like the biggest swing by the SEC, especially given that it's not out of the statute. The statute itself that they're pursuing these enforcement actions under doesn't mention insider trading, doesn't seem like the legislative history contemplated insider trading as being regulated. But still, the SEC is able to, in the 60s, get this disclosure abstain rule and wins pretty much every case – that they bring under you know for insider trading up until essentially justice powell takes the bench so it has a very sort of sweeping and very quick shift in how we understand insider trading out of those that texas gulf sulfur case so then there is another turn of the tides it seems when justice powell is elevated to the supreme court Tell us a little about that. What do you know about Powell and his background and why that changes things?
0: So he's a uh, Virginia native who uh, went to uh, Washington and Lee. I don't, I, I don't think I am learning the same halls as he did. Our building's uh, newer. But upon graduation, he began, well, you know, there was World War II, so he was in the military. But after that, he went to work for the predecessor of Hunton and Andrews, in Richmond, and he primarily focused on corporate law, mergers and acquisitions, and uh, securities regs regulations. So he has a strong background in corporate law and securities markets. Interestingly, he was also the uh, a board member on Philip Morris. He did something as well with the American Tobacco Institute, and there was that memo he put out criticizing. Legislature and administrative bodies for going after Ward for their lack of safety protocols. So, like how I sort of imagine him is that he probably had an autographed version of Fountainhead or uh, Atlas Shrugged.
1: Amazing, yeah, um, that might be right. Very pro business, I guess. Yeah, he's Even-
0: very pro business, and because of his strong finance background, he was able to get his views to be the majority opinions in Chiarella uh, and Dirks.
1: Right, it does seem that the court almost deferred to him on these more technical or sort of corporate or certainly securities related cases, which seems to be why he was assigned to write Shirella and Dirks. So what, what are those cases? Well, Let's start with Shirella, which we went over a bit last episode, but just by way of sort of summary, what is your understanding of Chirella and what happens and, and why that case is important?
0: So in Sharella, there is a non uh, not an insider, not a corporate insider. The individual, Sharella, who is the petitioner, is an employee for a financial printing publication of some sort where the actual companies use this publishing company to distribute their material non-public, or to actually disclose their material non-public information. And to avoid a premature disclosure, the company used a sort of code to prevent its employees from trading on the information before it was public. And somehow Shirella was able to crack the code. And, you know, he made a, a hefty profit on a lot of his tragi- trades because he was always leading it before the news actually broke. So the lower courts, whatever district court, and I think the Second Circuit, the district court convicted him of the 10b-5 violation because there was the duty or the disclose or abstain rule. And then the uh, Second Circuit affirmed it. And then Justice Powell decided to reverse the uh, conviction. What it all really boiled down to is that for Justice Powell... Charella owed no duty to the uh, sellers or the shareholders because he was not an insider or a uh, fiduciary. So he had no real obligation to disclose the uh, non-public information before trading. Uh, and liability for a 10b5 violation for is only for corporate insiders. Obviously, uh, they are the only ones who have that duty to disclose because it arises from a relationship of trust and uh, confidence between the parties of the transaction, that is the shareholders and whoever they're buying or selling the share to. The petitioner, Shirella, obviously, he didn't have a a relationship of duty and trust at least to the company whose shares he was trading and his counterparty. Therefore, according to Powell, that does not Rise to a 10b-5 violation because again, not an agent and not a fiduciary. So we really wanted to uh, reel in the SEC from their overly broad use of 10b-5 violations and disclose or abstain. So now, absent of that duty of trust and confidence, individuals can they can't do everything or anything they want with the material non-public in information but they can do a lot more than what they could do uh, previously.
1: Yeah, that does seem like a pretty big shift. So we had a blanket disclose or abstain rule that applies broadly to sort of everybody. And it does seem like after chi Powell has written to the law that that disclose or abstain is premised upon a duty to disclose. And that duty to disclose only arises if there is, as you said, this relationship of trust and confidence or fiduciary duty is another way to think of that. So I, that's where I think we Powell has the famous quote from that case, which is silence absent a duty to speak is not fraud. So this disclosure abstain gets tossed essentially because you don't have to disclose unless you have a duty to disclose. It sounds like Powell was saying that duty comes from a particular relationship. And it sounds like that, Relationship has to go to someone in the transaction or to the company and whose shares you're selling. Why was there not a fiduciary relationship acknowledged that Chiarella had to maybe even his employer in that case? It seems like you could find yeah. some duty. He, sh- he should have not said these, you know, or traded on this, but why did Powell not sort of consider that?
0: So that would be a like proto version of the misappropriation theory. It's mentioned. In the concurrence, and I know it's definitely mentioned in Justice Berger's dissent, but there's the judicial waiver and argument not briefed or argued is deemed waived. And in the district court, the theory of misappropriation was not brought up at all. So on review, they couldn't even consider it.
1: Yeah, that's my understanding as well, which is just prescient because we're going to get to when they can review and consider misappropriation in future episodes.
0: Oh. Which is very <laughs>
1: exciting. Okay, so that's where we were left after Tiorella. And then a few years later, there's another very important case that Justice Powell also writes. Tell us about that and what you know about this other case. This what other
0: case it? being Dirks, <laughs> Dirks v. SEC. Dirks is a uh, investment analyst for some sort of financial institution. How I sort of like to imagine it is, he received a call in the middle of the night from this ex insider, and the ex insider told him to meet him at like a parking garage on Fifth and Main Street, and uh, you you know how uh, in the movies the (laughs) insider has the uh, is in the shadow, and all you see is the tip of the cigarette. And he just sort of gives some vague information that there's fraud in equity funding. You need to go unearth this and reveal it to the public. So that's what Dirks does. He uh, sets off to uh, unearth this fraud. And he does so by interviewing with several of the insiders of equity funding. And they confirm that there is something is foul in the firm or in the company, Dirks initially attempts to actually disclose this to a newspaper publication in Los Angeles, but the journalist doesn't want to burn his reputation by publishing a story by someone who he doesn't really know. So once he failed to disclose because the journalist refused to disclose, he advised his clients to liquidate their shares of the uh, equity funding and some probably even short-sold the company. This led to a massive decline in the company's value. Then the SEC, as they always do, decides to investigate what went wrong. And this just seems like a whistleblower case, to to be honest. So going after Dirks doesn't make a, a whole lot of sense because even in the punishment they were seeking, it was just censure, which I, I don't think leads to any sort of uh, monetary fines or, you know, loss of the Series 7 or, yeah, Series 7 or Series 79. So th- there was really no point. And then it led the Dirks, which resulted in the SEC prosecuting insider trading with one arm behind their back. With this, with the pals building off of the analysis he had in uh, Shirella, he thought that this was a pretty straightforward case in terms of, yeah, we should reverse this conviction, but he still wanted to find a general principle. He and his clerk wanted to find a general principle to help guide the SEC and how they can prosecute 10B5 violations when there is a corporate insider. So with this, the uh, primary holding and uh, legal analysis of PAL is that, that again, there must be a duty to disclose between the parties but primarily there first must be a breach of duty by that insider before the person who he disclosed that information to and who acted on in this case Dirks can at all be a liable so in other words first the tipper this is where we get the tipper tippy relationship analysis the tipper must have breached a duty before derivative liability can be brought against the tip And then Justice Powell sought to define what this potential breach could be. And in the opinion, he gives a non-exhaustive list, illustrative examples of what this breach could be. The general principle is just whether the insider received some sort of personal benefit from the disclosure. And then the two examples he gave are a pecuniary gain or a reputational benefit that translates into future earnings. Well, that's not really the case here. Well, first of all, the SEC didn't even try to bring a claim against the insider. So right there, there's no breach of duty. Thus, there can be no derivative breach, but there's no actual evidence of any sort of personal benefit that the insider actually received.
1: Wait, so because let me just unpack some of what you're saying. So who is the insider in this case?
0: Well, it's actually an ex-insider.
1: He oh, wasn't
0: actually employed, which you know this creates some wrinkles because a direct or indirect personal benefit. And then, well, what is that personal benefit? It's because he's an ex- Insider, I don't know if why he's an ex-insider. He could have been terminated or disgruntled as a result of not being there. So then the hmm. personal benefit could be that, you know, disclosing this fraud, harming them with the share price drop, the company getting its comeuppance, that's his personal benefit.
1: Interesting. That's an interesting angle I haven't thought about for this case. But just, okay, so to back it up, so Secrets, Chris, that thing you said, is a former insider but still has access to inside information or he
0: just yeah well he probably acquired it while he was an insider and then you know you can't forget the fraud there
1: right exactly and the the information is that there's company is rife with fraud he tells jerks we don't actually know necessarily on the face here what is happening with secrets or what happens with him no no there's um, nothing But they go after Dirks, who, as you pointed out, was the whistleblower who was trying to alert people about the Mm -hmm. fraud. he... He was
0: alerting people and neither him nor his firm traded on the information. They just disclosed it to their clients so that they could act. So it's not even like, well, I guess they could have some sort of reputational benefit of being the best. But
1: what is the SEC's theory against Dirks then? Why are they going after him? Why would that be insider trading?
0: I think it still comes down to the uh, it's about equal access of, or, or participants in markets that have equal information amongst all traders so that there is fairness. And when one individual or many individuals are trading on insider information that others don't have, it creates a unfair competitive advantage and they're trying to stop that.
1: Okay. Yeah, that's right. And so Dirk's essentially stands in the shoes of the insider. I think you mentioned that. Are,
0: yes. Uh, he inherits the breach of the insider through the derivative liability. Okay. But you know, there is no insider breach, at least based on the facts here.
1: Right. Oh, Yeah. I mean, we still have material non-public information that the, the now ex-insider has learned. Mm-hmm. So Dirks, through derivative liability, he stands in the shoes of that insider, but is just the tippy. And so the court, I think you're right, looks to, can we now prove insider trading given those facts? Because we now need to show a fiduciary duty, but we have Dirks who is maybe standing in the shoes in a derivative sense, but what duty is he breaching? And Powell, it looks like he is still breaching a duty because he's telling people about this. He probably should have kept it in confidence or whatever. Essentially, Dirks is has the same standing now as an insider. He is letting information out, but Powell, it sounds like, decides that that still isn't enough.
0: Yeah, there needs to be something more, and with that, the insider needs the benefit in some sort of way.
1: Right, so the insider, the tipper, has to receive some sort of benefit, and that is how we see that there's been a breach of fiduciary duty. That's the evidence of the breach. And so, what does PAL say again? What is the evidence of the breach?
0: Well, presently, there is none.
1: Oh, but what does PAL say should be there? That he uh, says
0: so it's he, not here. Well, he gives a few examples uh, again, the pecuniary gain or reputational benefit. But then there's a relationship that suggests quid pro quo from the uh, tippy, so that the tippy is somehow benefiting the tipper, or the tipper just has the intention to benefit a particular tippy or individual. And then there's also the gift theory between trading friends and relatives where there's that's just a presumption of a breach of duty.
1: Okay, that makes sense. Like if I can't trade because I'm the insider, then I can't just tell my sister to yeah. trade and then on my they, behalf.
0: On the back end, give you a share of the gains.
1: Okay, and so that still seems like an end around... And so the other one is, like you said, a quid pro quo, meaning you get paid to tip someone. Yeah. And that does also seem problematic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, again, he, this is the second time now when there could have been a liability for insider trading based on the existing rules that had been set up. Obviously, in Chiarella, we had the broad disclosure abstain rule that he essentially does away with. But even after Chiarella, Dirks with the SEC likely could still make a case that this is still breach of fiduciary duty. But again, Powell sort of again rewrites the elements and to, makes fiduciary duty get narrowed to include you have to have evidence of this personal benefit that the insider received in order to show there's actually been a breach of fiduciary duty. So it is sort of a significant shift from disclosure abstain. No insider trading ever is allowed. If you have inside information, you just cannot enter the market and trade to this, again, new elements that Powell has introduced into insider trading regulation. So, why do you think, stats, that that, that was allowed? This is how is this not maybe a violation of due process? This is a sweeping change in law that no one saw coming and no one maybe would have expected. Why is that not a problem for at least Chiarella or Dirks?
0: In Shirella and Dirks, the defendants, or I guess the petitioners, they don't go to jail so that then there is no real potential due process violation by the drastic change in the, I guess, federal common law of how 10b5 violations can occur.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. So again, a very major shift in insider trading regulation, but one that results in acquittals and these individuals not being found liable for insider trading. So one of my sort of last questions here about Dirks and really about PAL jurisprudence in general is where does this then leave us? What is the outcome of this? these two really important cases? What does the SEC need to show to bring an insider trading case now at least successfully under 10b5
0: the sec needs to show that the insider through their breach of duty has somehow benefited by disclosing this information to the tippy who then somehow acted upon it and the sec after dirksen charella published or the commissioner treadway published a whole i, I just called a playbook I think one of the quotes in there before he lists how various professional classes can be in violation of 10b5 still is well while Dirks is seemingly restrictive like that was the language they use i think seemingly is underlined even but you can still get people in a whole bunch of ways
1: that's true you just right? need
0: to prove that benefit
1: that is one of the great things about so many things, archival documents being available online or in our Powell archive that we have available at Washington and Library, is that we can see all of these first hand accounts and see things where we see the strategy behind the scenes, both somewhat from Powell trying to narrow this, but also from the SEC and, and seeing how this really is a, a strategy to push the law in one direction or another, which is, I think, fascinating because it doesn't seem as... As black and white as maybe it would seem at at first blush to people, that there's actually something, there's some machinations behind the scene going on. So last question for you, Stats, and then I'll let you off the hook here. But do you think this is the correct rule? Do you think this is the, the right direction for insider trading to have it be further narrowed? Or are you more of a fan of a broader prohibition on trading on inside information? What do you think about this?
0: I think it's very fact specific. There is somewhere like, you know, it leaves you with an upset stomach reading a fact pattern and then the person gets out of it and then you'd want a broader interpretation. But by and large, I think the narrower Dirk's dicta is the correct way simply because it, will, it forces the SEC to find that actual breach and actual benefit that has a result from the unfair advantage. You need the personal benefit, honestly.
1: Okay. So a fan of Justice Powell personal benefit tests and actually really just the best lawyerly answer you could give, which was it depends on the facts of each case.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) This is good. You'll you'll keep the lawyers employed for a long time with that that (laughs) assessment. Well, it creates
0: more work for the SEC too.
1: That's true. That's a good point. Lawyers on both sides.
0: Yeah, the nice revolving door.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Maybe that'll be one of our topics in the future as well. But anyway, Stats, thank you so much for enlightening me and everyone on this topic and on this case and the background of Justice Powell and his role in creating sort of the federal common law of insider trading as we know it now. Unless you have other comments or thoughts, stats, I will let you go. And advise everyone to tune in to the next episode when we see how this plays out in more modern cases. But thanks for listening.
0: Thank you.